0: I work out in a gym super close to here, and I swim, that's, the, that's the, the bulk of my workout is just swimming laps. And so I change in my swimsuit in the locker the men's locker room, and walk into the, the it's in the back, the, the, the three-lane lap pool. And right as you walk into, walk from the men's locker room into the pool area, which is co-ed, um, there's a sign, and we have a picture of it, I think, but if it's, we don't, that's fine. There's a sign, it's my favorite sign because it's so obvious and it just says, uh, yeah, swimsuits required, um, which just, I hadn't noticed it until about three weeks ago. And Maybe I was thinking about this sermon, but I just thought, you know, that is just so fantastic. Just in case you had no idea and you were just feeling free and walking out of the men's locker room into the swim place thinking it's like a Turkish bath or I don't know what, but forgetting the fact that it's co-ed, no, 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 you have to have trunks on, brother um make no mistake like you can't be more clear than that um i and i just want to say that it, it made me think of maybe i loved it so much because it made me think by contrast of the law or the sign as it were that god put up for adam when he gave him all this garden and as nathaniel just read he said to him look uh you can eat from anything in the garden but don't eat from this tree and it doesn't, by contrast to this sign, which is just so obvious, I get it, I understand why you're asking me to do this, not to do this would be super creepy, God's sign or God's law, God's word, his command is prohibition, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, and so I want to uh, talk about that just for a while, and then, yeah, really for the whole time um, this morning. So let's look at that. Um, together. Okay, so let me, instead of reading the verses again, um, let me just sort of summarize them by saying there are two, one of our, one of our uh, members was actually reading through this passage again for the hundredth time or whatever, and said, um, man, I didn't realize that the tree of life, which was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are two different trees, and indeed they are. So there are two trees amongst the many trees, but these two trees are in the center of the garden." And we focus in, in this, in this word here to us this morning, on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Um, and what does God say? First of all, the tree itself, uh, and I remember reading this through in the Hebrew for the first time, you, in Genesis 1, you come across the refrain, it was good, it was good, it was good. Everything God makes, he pronounces over it a blessing, it's good. For the first time in the Bible, you get to this word, it just hit me more in a different language, and because I'm reading it a lot slower, you get to the word, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you get to that word evil, rah, in the Hebrew, and it just hits you. It's alien. This is a tree, it's a strange, seemingly a strange tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you get to the consequence that God enunciates that he says, if you break this command and if you eat from this tree of which I have told you not to eat, in the day you eat of it, what? You will surely die. It's the first time we have that word in the Hebrew Bible, in the Bible. And I just remember that hit me too, really hard. It seems so alien and it's not. In this place, this culture, this creation that God has made of life and of goodness, that word die strikes us like a gong. It hits us hard. Um, So at best, I think, best case, this law, at least on first glance and consideration, seems arbitrary. Doesn't seem to make sense. And at worst, it seems cruel. It seems like a setup, like a tease. Like, hey, he gave us a perfect environment, and then he put this thing there and said, don't trip over it. Um, So I want to press into it together. Um, I think that the very fact that we, maybe it's just me but that I, that we can tend to see this prohibition as arbitrary or even possibly a setup shows that we are broken. It shows that we're broken because what? We tend to skip over when we read it. It tends to hit us as, why can't we do that? But we're missing the massive provision that God gives in this because the bigger picture is he doesn't just say, don't do that, does he? That's not the context. What's the context? What's the context? The context is allowance. The context is he puts them in a place that really he made, not just a garden, a creation that he made for them, gave them dominion over, said cultivate it, bring out the potential of my creation, be in relationship with me, and just enjoy. And he said, look, here's how he proceeds it. And we tend to skip this and go straight to the prohibition, which I think tells us something if we're honest about ourselves, which I want to press into. But he says, of every tree of the garden, you may surely eat total free reign, have at it, just go for it, enjoy. But there's just one tree, just one. There's really just one rule. Everything else you can do, just don't eat from this one tree. Um, And so I think that tells me something. The fact that I skip over that tells me something about me. Um, and, And I think that let's just hone in for a few seconds on that thing that we tend to skip over. That massive, not prohibition. The prohibition's small, it's a sliver but the massive allowance of every tree you may surely eat. So first of all, um, there's massive allowance, may surely eat, or we could translate, you may surely eat of every tree to, you may eat to the full. In other words, fill yourself, enjoy, be satisfied. I've given you taste buds. I've made things that taste good. You can just pluck and eat, pluck and eat. It's easy, it's good, it's for you. Have at it, eat to the full. Not eat until... Not eat until some of your hunger pains are gone. Eat to the full. And in the Hebrew, it's you may eat, eat. It's just repeated, the verb. Or um, literally, it's eating, you may eat. Eating, you may eat. Just dive in and enjoy. Then also, he says, not just eating, you may eat, but of every tree. Again, every other tree, you can just have at. And I think when we miss the bounty of what God gives to us, it's deadly. It's deadly. And it was in this case, because if we fast forward a chapter, which we'll be going to that throughout this sermon, we see how deadly it was. But when we miss the bounty, don't miss it. He, he gives it in context. He doesn't just say, don't see this tree right here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. He doesn't say that. In context, he says, you may surely or freely or fully eat. Eating you may eat. Dive in from every other tree. When we divorce that from the prohibition, we get in trouble because what do we do? We start focusing in on the thing he's told us we can't do. And what does that do? It makes us think that God is stingy. It makes us think he's a spoil sport and he's up in heaven with a ruler waiting to crack our knuckles. That's not his disposition, and we can see that from the bounty that he gives to us. Living in a place of gratefulness, we're enjoined to do that over and over as God's children, giving thanks At all times and all things, for all circumstances, remembering that he sends us sun. He sends us rain. He gives us breath. He puts food on the table and all these things that he does for us that we surely don't deserve. He's given us life itself, okay? The blood courses through our veins. Um, But when we focus on the prohibition, I think this speaks to the fact that I go right there to my bentness, to my brokenness. It colors our view of God. And we think he's holding out on us. And ultimately, if you fast forward a chapter, Genesis 3, that's exactly what the serpent insinuates to Adam and Eve, to our, our first parents, that God is holding out on you. He doesn't want what's best for you, he doesn't want bounty. He doesn't want you to have what's best, okay? And that's what happens. Um, this sin of unbelief, I think a lot of times, and that's what, one of the things that when we focus on not his bounty, but it's prohibition. It's not believing the truth about who God is. It can happen not just to an, an unbeliever, someone who doesn't know God. It can happen to us as children of God. And I don't, when, by saying us, I don't assume, I dare not assume that all of us are children of God by faith in Christ. If you're here and you're not, I'm so glad you're here. But even, even for children of God who are believers, faith isn't just a one-time deal. It's not like one and done, okay? We are considered reckoned righteous through faith in another, Jesus Christ, but we grow in that faith. And a lot of times as Christians, we can walk in unbelief. We can walk saying, yeah, I believe the creeds. I believe all these things, the Nicene Creed and others things I read in the scriptures, but walking in um, practical agnosticism or atheism. Not believing in our day-to-day that God is good. Not believing that he wants the best for us and has the best for us. Not remembering what he's done for us in Jesus Christ and that that's his heart and thinking that he is holding out on us, and I better get the gusto for myself. Okay, so, and I'm, I'm the first to confess. If I'm pointing one finger at you, I'm pointing four back at myself. I'm the first to confess that I can live in that unbelief. And as my wife pointed out to me, that's one of the things that can lead to strongholds in our life. It can lead to strongholds in our life. As we, um, we our view is colored by the things that we can't do and that God prevents us from doing and, and prohibits and we're just, we're just focused on those things. And so we begin to worship a false God. And we begin to think of God wrongly. And we begin to go after things that, that are wrong for us, that we think life is in. We see it with our first parents. We see it daily with ourselves. We see it daily with ourselves. Um, we, are in a, we have a class at 9 a.m. And we're going through the whole Bible. And we're in uh, Leviticus and Numbers right now. First few books of the Old Testament. Um, we were in Exodus a few weeks ago and in Exodus is the first time God gives the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, if you, we all at least know about them, even if we don't know them, we might, we've heard them maybe. But you can, they're rules. They're, live this way, don't do this, do this, okay? We can think of, out of context, we can just think of them as a list of things. He's waiting to crack our knuckles, don't do this. A lot of them are, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. We can think of it as, it's not a loving God, he's just waiting, he's a sport. But we're reading it out of context if we do that because what has just happened what has just happened before that before he brings the people to Sinai and comes down on the mountain and gives them a law to live by what happens right before that in the in the narrative he has just brought them out of slavery through no good of their own he has chosen to set his love on them and he has brought them out of Egypt out of the iron furnace And he has parted the Red Sea and he has drawn them into the wilderness and he's about to give them a land that he has promised to them because he has chosen to cherish them as his people, Israel, the Hebrews. Um, And so what does he say at the beginning of the 20 20 commandments? In Exodus 20, I'm adding 10, is that okay? (laughs) Heresy alert. Um, There are a bunch more that follow, but the 10 commands, the 10 words, um, but right before he lists them all out, here's what they are. There's a little preamble. You know what it is? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have saved you through no good of your own. I have lavished my love upon you. I didn't save you because of your behavior. I saved you because of who I am. I've freely given it. Now, therefore, in light of my love, live in this way. Do you see how that changes things? He's a good God. He's a loving God. Um, we can see, I mean, I could list off a litany, but just two things, sex and money. We can see those, these things like that, Okay. We can think that we can give sex to the devil. There are all these no's around, at least in the scriptures around, here's how to do it right. We have to remember it's a gift. It's God's. He made it. He made us to respond to it and he made it to be good. But just like a fire is to be kept within parameters so that it cooks food and warms the house because if it gets out of those parameters, it can literally burn the house down. Sex is that way. Do it in this way. I've given it to you for good. Money is the same thing. Money's good, but we tend to focus on what we can't do with it. And okay, it's yours and not mine. And, and I have to honor you with it, all these things, but it's a gift that God's given us. Um, and, you know, to kind of bring it down to the kids level, like kids can do this with, for instance, candy, right? Like no good parent is going to let their kids have free run with the candy. Like if my kids ate candy as much as they wanted to, uh, they'd be dead. <laughs> you know, just like fun dip, you know, I think just, you know, pixie sticks straight down the throat. I mean, I used to do that at Fame City. I mean, hello, anyone go to Fame City? I mean, kids would kill themselves with candy if we let them, right? And when you take it from them and when most of what you say is no and you give them the occasional candy, man, they can really think, dad and mom are spoil sports, they must hate me. Not true. It's because we love you. It's because we love you. But still, why the tree? Why this tree? Um, I think part of it, just a few little Sub points and then pressing into where I really think the main the main sort of center of the tree. Um, but a few things that I think it tells us that having this prohibition of don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, it helps us to recognize that we aren't we're we're finite creatures. We don't have we can't we don't have absolute run of everything. We can't do everything we want, nor is that the key to happiness. We're limited, and the key to our happiness is to recognize those limits that God has given. And to be in connection with Him, and part of our part of it is that our happiness and our freedom is connected to obedience to Him. It's not just having the, having the run of the of of, of the park. Um, so God is the center; we revolve around Him. We need Him. He's our Son, and that's part of happiness and liberty and freedom. And limits mean freedom. Like I said a few weeks ago, um, I didn't use this example, but I found it: a goldfish who's just seeking absolute freedom equals no limits. Who jumps out of the goldfish uh, bowl because that's a limit is not going to find freedom. He's going to find death. His limit within that bowl is part of his freedom. He's made to be prescribed, uh, proscribed. Okay, within a limit. I I mentioned Indian highways. You know, in the uh, the country of India, the highways. At least when I went in Bangalore, were just insane. It's like spaghetti. There are no lines. There are no limits. And it doesn't create freedom. It creates chaos. And we could, we, could, uh, we could throw out example after example. Um, in fact, another, another sort of insight that's corollary, John Lennox, the Oxford mathematician, says that pro, this prohibition actually shows that it provides for human freedom, kind of like I just said. Um, it shows that we, we are moral agents who have choices to make. And our choices, when we choose what God tells us to do, show, like it helps that that is walking in freedom. And it allows us a choice that the sheep and the fish and the birds of the heavens that God makes good don't get these choices. They don't get the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The fact that we're able to act on God's word, it's not, it doesn't mean that we're not free. It means that we are free. Connection to God's word and obedience to him is our freedom. And lastly, and I think maybe most simply on this point, it's not always good to know more. It's the tree of the Knowledge. And we could press in for sermon after sermon just on this one point. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? Well, in a sense, it means that to know it's kind of a mirrorism, a way of saying the heavens and the earth is a way of saying the universe. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil means to know everything. And the Hebrew know is much more experiential than our know, as we've said in the past. It's not just cognitive to know that two plus two equals four. It's to know as a man knows his wife. Or as you know a country because you've been to Sevilla, Spain. You know Sevilla. You don't just know about it. You haven't just seen it on a map. You don't just know that flamenco and orange groves and bullfighting came from there. You've been there. Your feet have walked the cobbled streets. Um, Hebrew know is that way. And so to know certain things experientially, it's not freedom. It's not freedom. But to be able to make a choice about them based on God's word, God is telling us through this tree, that is freedom. That is freedom. We were made... For limits, and God knows what they are. But, but I think the main thing I want to say, at least for me, is that this tree, the main thing about this tree that it tells me about us is that God made us for trust. Excuse me. He made us to trust him, and he made us for relationship. So I want to press into that for a few minutes. Um, he made us for trust, and he made us for relationship. Um, I'm, I've read, I'm reading another book by this guy, Bob Goff. I mentioned it a few weeks ago, um, and I'm, reading, I'm reading, reading one now. But in the, in the book that I read before, I think it's Everybody Always, he talks about how they live in California, but he has a lodge, it must be just a big house. It's a, he calls it a lodge up in Canada that they go to all summer, apparently. It must be nice. Um, but they have a lodge in Canada, and I, he, he puts his phone number, he literally puts his cell phone number in the back of the book so you can just call him anytime, and people do. Um, and people call him from prison, and it's like 10, 10 to $15 collect per time. And he, he said, I answer it like over a dozen times a day, so man, I did the math, and that's that dude, but I would wished, I found myself wishing he put his address in Canada in there as well. Um, cause that would be a fun place to go, but it's a place that's, um, in British Columbia in one of those beautiful glacial lakes in an inlet. And he just describes it and it's wonderful. And they have a pontoon plane, but anyway, in the lodge, he has a big table and they brought heads, of, everything from heads of state to just friends, uh, there people they just met, he meets all sorts of people and is immediately like their best friend. He's brought a lot of people there. And one of the things they do is if the person comes to the lodge and sits down at the table, he has them get under the table, weird, and get a, he gives them a pen and they have to write their name in one word under their name or next to their name. And he has a friend, Dan, who wrote the word with. And the reason that Dan wrote the word with is because he says that's, if you're going to have a bumper sticker, that's going to be it for him, with. To him, that's what life is about. It's about being with people. And we want to be with people. We want to be in community. We need to be in community because God is a God of community, Father, Son, and Spirit, who made us for himself and for others who are made in his image. All, all the country songs are about love for a reason, rather received or, requi- or, uh, or requited. Um, and so the God, I think that's a simple story that, that reminds us and shows us the heart of what this tree's about. It's about relationship and it's about trust. You can't have relationship unless you have trust. And what this tree engenders is trust. And so it reminds us that we are made for relationship with the living God. I remember I had a homiletics, a preaching professor who was talking about missionaries who would leave their wives uh, for years sometimes. And he said, man, I couldn't do that. I married my wife to be with her. Simple statement. I married my wife to be with her. And uh, that's exactly why I married, I remember thinking that when I asked Robin to marry me, he's like, I want to be with this woman. I don't want to not be with her. I don't want someone else to have that pleasure for the rest of their lives. I want that pleasure. I like her. I'd like to be with her. I'd like to be with her until we die. Um, And so that's what God made us for. Um, And I think this tree tells us about that. Um, We are made for relationship with God. Um, There is a book it's the middle book in the space trilogy by C.S. Lewis, and it's called Paralandra. C.S. Lewis was an Oxford literature and Cambridge literature professor. Um, and, and he, he recreates, Paralandra is another name for Venus. He has this guy go to Venus. It's an inhabitable planet, and it is Eden. You have the equivalent of Adam and Eve, the first, creature, the first man and woman on the island and of all the creatures, but the fall hasn't happened yet. So it's basically the Genesis 2 scene. It's an amazing book. It was one of his favorites, and it's maybe my favorite that he's written. Uh, If you haven't read it, read it. But Perilander, part of his space trilogy, C.S. Lewis. And in it, instead, he recreates this temptation scene. And what he does is instead of having a tree of knowledge of good and evil, he has what he calls a fixed island. And the fixed island, all the islands, all the rest of the islands on on Venus are floating. They float on these waves and on the waters. And you kind of have to get sea legs to even be on them. But it's, it's just cool how he describes the planet. But there's one island that's fixed like ours. And in our world, fixed island's fine. Fixed earth is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But in this planet, the divine being, um, he Maleldil, he just says, because of his word, don't, he says, don't. You can go on the fixed island, but once the sun sets at night, you may not stay overnight on the fixed island. What makes it, what makes it sinful, what makes it not doable, what makes it wrong, is that simply that God has said, "Don't do it." On our world, it's fine. Um, it seems arbitrary, and it even seems kind of like a setup. But again, the only reason is that He has bid His creatures not to be on the fixed island. Um, it, you can't submit that command to your reason and have it work out. You can lots of other commands. But what it means is that you're relying not ultimately on your reason, but on his word. And it makes you trust. And ultimately, you're not relying on your will, but what? On his will. And so that creates relationship. It creates relationship. Uh, It makes us trust him. It's either, in the end, it's either going to be my reason or God's. I have to make my choice. I have to make my choice. Um, And, you know, that seems a bit up here, but I think every parent or anyone who's been a kid, so you you either have been a kid or maybe if you're a kid now, this applies to you too. But there's a point as a parent at which, and if you're a kid, you've heard this probably too many times from us. I know my children have. You give them reasons for all sorts of things, but at some point you just say to them when they say, why, 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 why? And they say it 115 times a day because they're curious but also they're, they're kind of testing you. At some point, you say, because I said so. And ultimately, I've always heard it presented as sort of like the parent just gets tired. Because I said so! And I've said it like that way too many times, right? <laughs> like, because I said so! You know, you, you kinda, your dignity kind of goes out the window at that point. You don't have as much cred <laughs> at that point when you do that. But um, I think ultimately we know deep down, even if we haven't articulated this, that they need to, at some points, be able to obey simply because you said so and not have a reason. Because what does that require? It requires sometimes them to not need to have to understand because they know that you want the best for them and that you've proven yourself. We don't trust people who haven't proven themselves trustworthy, but hopefully you have. You've proven yourself trustworthy and at some point, they need to be able to do something just because they trust you. And you said it, and that settles the matter. And you can explain later. But for right now, I need you to say, I need you to do it because I asked you to do it. Um, So we know this intuitively. And you know, that's a simple sort of pedestrian example that I think any of us can understand. But also, it honestly permeates every area of knowledge. Science works this way. And we don't have time to go into exactly all all of why, but one simple explanation for that is, um, there are certain things, there are a lot of things, I've touched on this in the past, that science can't explain itself through its own mechanisms, okay? Um, So there are lots of things that science has to assume to actually work. Like, for instance, the principle of induction. Induction is reasoning from particular principles and truths to to general principles. From particular truths to general principles. And so that's how science is done. You do something and it works out this way, and you, you, you put down um, what the results are, and then you say, okay, I trust that based on those particularities, this general thing is going to be true, and so when I do these things in this way at this time, exactly, the same thing's gonna happen. Or if I change it, something's different's gonna happen. That, that process is called induction. You are inducing, and that can't be proven by experiment. All I mean, David Hume showed that, um, Uh, Bertrand Russell, both of whom were famous atheists, showed that induction is necessary for science and it's based on faith. It's based on assumption. You have to assume, by the way, meaning, which materialism cannot prove. And actually, it's it's ludicrous to try to prove meaning from pure energy and materialism. You have to assume meaning that the experiments and the words that we are talking about and using mean something uh, to be able to do science um, so just meaning in general is something that we can't prove. It has to be assumed. Um, and then also relationships, as I've sort of hinted at, relationships work this way. So with me and Robin, she will say a fair amount, and I find her saying this less now because I think I'm starting to learn the lesson, just starting. I emphasize starting. But she will say, you, I feel like, we'll get in an argument, and she'll say, I feel like you think the worst of me. You assume the worst of me. And oftentimes she's at least partially true. I'm not giving her the benefit of the doubt. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? Love what? Believes all things. Not idiotically, not if somebody hasn't proven, but within a relationship like like that, in a relationship with a God who has proven himself true and his word to be true and what he's done to be good and loving for us, even if we can't fully understand it. I need to come into this argument or to this thing that I don't understand and go, I'm going to assume well of you You've proven yourself trustworthy in the past. And that actually is the soil in which good and healthy relationships grow. If you do not have that, you will have a terrible relationship. It's no different with God. It's no different with God. And he gives us his word. And if we flout it, uh, it it wrecks things. So Adam and Eve, they had his word, but they broke it. Um, And it ruined them. And hey, it didn't just ruin them and their relationship and their relationship with God. It ruined everything that had been put under their charge, which means it ruined all of creation. It's what we call the fall. It wasn't a fall down the stairs. It was something that shattered the cosmos, okay? Because they were given charge over all things as God's co-regents. Why? That seems like overkill. Do you ever think about that? One, you broke one command and literally everything has been in ruins ever since, Again, everything was put under our charge, but also think about who God is. His word and obedience to it is how we relate to him, and it is trust if we obey, and it is life. And so to cut ourselves off, not just from someone who gives life, but from life itself. He is, he is life radiating. He is the source, just like the sun's the source of our, of our light. He is the source of life. He is life itself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was making a divine claim, right or wrong. You can believe he wasn't who he said he was or he was, but he was claiming divinity there, okay? God is life. And when, you, when you're sitting on a, the proverbial limb and you start sawing yourself off, the only thing left for you, you're sawing yourself off from the root and the trunk. And when you finish that job, the only thing left for you as a limb is to fall and to sit there on the ground. And the only thing, that limb has so much life in it from being connected to the trunk that it's gonna last for a while. But what it, so what did God say? He said, in the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. He didn't say instantly. He, literally, the Hebrew is dying. Just like eating, you, you can eat. Eating, you may eat. Dying, you will die. The process of death will start because you've sawn yourself off from the source of life itself. What is... So a a tree limb will remain green for maybe a few weeks because there's so much sap in it. But eventually what's gonna happen to it? It's just slowly going to die. All the life, all the nutrients, all the water is going to be sucked out of it. And eventually at some point, all that's gonna be left for it is kindling. It's all it's gonna be good for is to be burned up. It will die, die, dying it will die um so that's the tree and i just want to speak for a few minutes about um the other tree last point and then a few points of application so that's that tree that strange tree we pressed into some of why i think it's there really to connect us to god and to show that freedom and a perfect world means being in relationship with god we were made what to be with that word under the table him and that means to do what he says Okay, if, you're, if your kids don't understand that that's the key to life, they will die soon if they, don't, if they don't obey you. And so you help them to try to obey because you know it's life for them, right? It's the same with us and God. We need God's word to live. We rejected it. And in doing so, we rejected him and death ensued. And so what, if you wanna know what the rest of the Bible's about, quick, just a five second, sort of here's the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, from Genesis three through the last prophet Malachi is sort of a working out of that death but God being faithful with his promises and making a people for himself despite that, okay? But that disobedience and that death that follows. Um, But in the fullness of time, Galatians 3, God sent not just prophets, not just priests, not just kings, not just wise men, but he sent us his own son. When the time was exactly right, Hebrews chapter one, he sent us himself. Fully man, born a child of a virgin, of the Holy Spirit, and fully God. He sent us his own son, his beloved son. Um, He sent us himself. But those who received him, those who he came to, I should say, those whom he came to, did they do better than Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve broke God's word. Those who Jesus came to, you can read the Gospels and find out, but take my word for it for now. They didn't just break his word, they, they literally broke him. He, what John calls him the word, the logos, the Greek logos, the word, the thing that gives intelligence and meaning and life to all things, the, the one through whom all things were made. We didn't just break a command of God. We broke God himself, if I can say that. We broke the very son of God on a tree. Um, you know, and they did, but we haven't done any better, have we? Um, for, for Adam, just want to compare Adam and and the second Adam here for a little bit. For Adam, obedience was easy. If I can say that. It was easy. He had every advantage. He was sinless. He was in a garden. He could eat of anything. He just couldn't eat of this one, this one tree. Um, not for the second Adam. Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. And Adam just means human. He was the second human. Everyone between the first Adam and the second Adam was just shadows because of their brokenness. But here comes the second human, the second Adam. And he had, he didn't have... Just one thing to keep. He had all the Old Testament law. Hundreds and hundreds of laws to keep from the heart, truly, out of love for God and neighbor, and he did it. He did it. Um, He was tempted, not in a garden, but where? In the wilderness. In the desert that our sin had made of the earth. He was tempted, and he was tempted by Satan himself three times, but every time he held to God's word. Um, He was also tested just like Adam and Eve in the matter of a tree. The cross is referred to a tree a number of times in the Bible. And just like Adam was tested about a tree in an area that didn't seem to make much sense. Remember Jesus in Gethsemane? If there is any other way, if there's any other way, God, if there's any other way, Father, let's do that. I don't even fully understand this thing. How can this be the only way? But hey, Remember, in the matter of the tree, at some point you have to either say your will, God, or mine. What did Jesus say? Not my will. If this is the only way that it can be done, if this is the only way that humanity can be saved, then not my will. I trust you. Let your will be done. I trust you. And did he, Adam was promised life for his obedience. Jesus obeyed in the matter of the tree. What did he get? Did he get life? No, the tree itself was what he obeyed in, and the tree itself meant death. He was nailed to that tree. He was crucified. He died in our place as our substitute so that we could live, so that we could live. Um, we get, he got our penalty, the, all of the rebellion and the curse, he absorbed into himself on that cross and took what we deserve, which is why this is the best news ever. What we did for evil, God meant and used for good with his son taking our curse upon himself and being our go-between. In John 19, John says this, he says, now in the place where he was crucified, Jesus, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So he was tested in a garden, in the wilderness, but also in a garden of Gethsemane. That was a garden, the garden that he loved to go to where he could see the temple across the Kidron Valley. He died in or near a garden, And he was buried or rose in a garden, okay? Just like Adam. But he was successful where Adam failed so that we could have his record and he could take our curse. So what's the translation of all that? He's doing all these things that Adam didn't do in a garden. And yet he took death and gave us his life. The translation of that is do-over. God was doing a do-over, through the second Adam, through his son, which means that when he rose from the dead, it wasn't just a guy rising from dead, from the dead. It was a new humanity bringing with him all who would look to him, leaving the curse and our sin in the ground and starting over. Because of his life and his law keeping for you, you can't do it. And because of his death in your place, you deserved it, he took it. Paul says in Colossians that he is the first fruit of a new humanity and a new creation. He is the, the new beginning. And so if we are in him, we have a whole new creation awaiting, awaiting us. And if we are not, we are simply in the process of dying and drying out. And the only thing for us will be to be burned. This is, this is the gospel. We find life in Christ Jesus. Um, in John 20, it says that, Jesus comes to his disciples having risen again to a new kind of life, untouched by sin and the curse. And he comes to his disciples, and in this remade body, he's able to pass through walls. But he's still got a body because he eats fish and he eats a a piece of a honeycomb. They think he's a ghost, just like we would. But he's like, let me eat something. You have anything? They have some boiled fish. Broiled fish eats it. And what does he do after his resurrection from the dead as a new type of human? It says he breathes on them. It's a weird verse. He breathes, what are you doing, Jesus? He breathes on his disciples in that room. And it says, it says, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. The word spirit just means breath. Does that remind you of anything that I preached on last week? Remember Genesis 2, seven? Remember what does God do when he forms Adam from the clay of the ground, but he's not alive yet? What does he do? He goes face to face with him, as it were. And he breathes into him. And what does it say? Man became a living nephesh or soul, or being. It is the breath of God, his spirit, that makes us alive. And we lost that at the fall. What is Jesus doing? He is beginning a new order, a new creation. And in him, through faith in him, we come alive. We come alive, and only in him. Um, he is saying, I am a man who died, but I'm more than a man. I am the God who made man and the second Adam. He did it all. He did it all. And just like Adam got a commission after he was made to be fruitful and multiply, we would expect if we're doing this following thing, okay, Jesus is kind of like redoing everything that happened to Adam. We would expect a commission. And that's exactly what he gives. Right before he leaves, he brings his disciples up above the Sea of Galilee and he brings them around himself and he commissions them. And he says, I, all authority has now been given me. I have what Adam lost and was given. I've won it and now you have it in me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Be fruitful and multiply and preach the gospel of the fact that I have done it. And all men and women, no matter what their past is, no matter what they've done, it doesn't matter. If they come to me, they can be reborn anew. I have done it so they don't have to, okay? Three very brief takeaways. First is this. Obey in light of this tree. Let's obey even when it doesn't make sense and perhaps especially because God has proven himself trustworthy. He has given us his own son. What more could he give us? Nothing. He has shown us that he will go to ultimate lengths because of his love for us and that he knows what is best for us. So if you're in the valley of the shadow of death and man, you you feel like God is asking you through his word and his spirit to do something that doesn't make sense, let this be an encouragement to you that he is good Obey, that's where your freedom is. Um, and we can encourage each other in that regard. Um, obey, secondly, obey knowing that you don't have to. That sounds, that sounds, what? Obey knowing that you don't have to, because he already did. He obeyed in your, he didn't just die in your place for the sins that you have committed and rightly deserve to pay for. He also lived in your place. He obeyed all the commandments for you so that you don't have to obey God, you get to, and you can. And when you don't, you have an advocate before God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, as we, as we confessed earlier. Um, and finally, um, let me just combine these two. Jesus uh, repairs as we look to him, as we gaze on him. Let him repair your view of God as mean and stingy and holding out on you. To be able to gaze on Christ and know that what he did for us shows us the love of God the Father and how much he is to be trusted. Um, So especially when he's calling you to a hard path, know Christ is with you and he has gone before you and he has laid his life down for you and he is worth trusting. And then finally, just know that freedom isn't no limits. Freedom is a person. Freedom is being in a relationship with that person who is God and his name is Jesus Christ. So let's live in that freedom and let's proclaim it to the world because the world, friends, is enslaved, but it's getting set free person by person by the blood and the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's be a people who proclaim that freedom and invite other people into it and live it, okay? Um, Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for the two trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, through which you brought the curse by our disobedience and then eventually through whom you brought us, the second Adam, Jesus, and his tree, the cross. Um, We bless you. God, we bless you for what you're doing in Jesus and what you have done. Um, And I pray that you would just breathe on us and give us your spirit even now to make us alive. In Jesus' name, amen.